This show is part of the Electric Agora network of podcasts. Okay. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Everyday Philosophers, where we talk to philosophers who are not Twitter famous or research famous, but who nonetheless do good, important work. Our guest today is Yvonne Chu, who is situated at the U.S. Naval War College, as well as the Hoover Institution. So I'm going to talk to Yvonne about what it's like to teach at the U.S. Naval War College, what it's like to be at Hoover, and what she's working on. But before that, I'm going to start with small talk. So my small talk question is this. Uh, Which academic has a body of work that you find least appealing? And follow up, which academic's body do you find least appealing? (laughs) My god, I can only choose one. (laughs) No, no, no. Choose both. I insist. Okay. <laughs> um, wow. Well, also, this is on the record, so this is terrible because. Um... Well, you want me to start with my pick? Okay, go ahead. <laughs> Jeremy Bentham for both. Because we still see his body today, and it is horrifying. <laughs> In case people don't know, Jeremy Bentham's, um, what would you call it? His mummy, I suppose, mm-hmm. is on display at Cambridge, Cambridge University. And I suppose what happened is that after he died, he, uh, he had his body embalmed and it's on display. It's got a specific name too, like the auto something or other, but uh, yeah. you, can, you can see his, his corpse looking at you. And, um, and I believe he even as a joke is considered present at meetings of the Cambridge faculty, right? Present, but non-voting yeah. member. Yeah. yeah. Although, okay, so, um... Is it even creepier? Because I heard that his head is detached from the body and isn't That's it lying at its, yeah, and it's lying at his feet. Yeah, I think, I think we could look up, a, well, the, the listeners or the viewers can look up a picture if they're so inclined. And I think it's worth it. It's a great time. And, it is, yes. um, and it really- I think it should also, yeah. yeah. I think this should also should serve a lesson to all aspiring philosophers, philosophers everywhere, which is that this is how you could end up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is real posthumous fame. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, another, another, another uh, answer, if you're so inclined, is Lenin, right? I believe his body is still on display, or has it been um, drawn and quartered by this point? <laughs> I think it's still on display, and it's also embalmed. Um, yeah, yeah. I've actually, I, I aspire to see Lenin's dead body one day. Um, I have not, I, I, so the only embalmed um, dead dictator body I've seen is Ho Chi Minh's. Oh, okay. How was that? Yeah. Um, you know, weirdly fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're like, okay, okay this all worked out. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no matter no matter how bad somebody is, they're they're gonna have the same fate as Ho Chi Minh or Jeremy Bentham. Mm-hmm. Well, I noticed that you managed to evade the question and I commend you for that. Um <laughs> because mm-hmm. a, a serious answer would not be to your benefit. So um I'm going to say that is officially the end of small talk. Okay. And so now let's talk about the U.S. Naval War College. I, it, it, where is this place again? Is it in New, where is it? Rhode Island? Yeah, so it's in Newport, Rhode Island. So it's, you know, it's on the water. It's, mm-hmm. you know, great setting. Um, but yeah. of course, that's one of the benefits of working for the Navy is that usually, usually you're on, you're near the water. So life is pretty good. Or just only yeah. so bad life yeah. can get. <laughs> so. Well, um, how often have you taught on a sub? I've. 
never taught on a step unit. I should ask that. I should add that to my list of requests. I have, I have a long list. The first on the list is a tail hook landing. Um, uh-huh. I don't know if I'll ever get that, but, um, but if anybody, if my, any of my colleagues are listening, this, this is what I would like. <laughs> hold on, hold on, stop. What is a tail hook landing? So where they come in with the plane and then on the aircraft carrier, and then they have to grab, he has to, the, the plane has to grab onto a, um, uh, uh, Oh, I know what you mean. A, yeah. has to grab onto a rope. Yeah. That, that, and, and, and what would it mean for you to get one? Like you'd be in the plane or you'd yeah. be like, okay, not on the yeah. tail hook. Right. Right. So okay, I'd be yeah. in the, pl- in the plane. Um, I probably throw up and I probably would have passed out by then too, but yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, so, so you're on the water. That's number one. So like literally your camp from your campus, you're, you're at a beach basically. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's not a beach that you hang out at and, and get a tan on, but, um, right. but it's really nice. And uh, people go sailing all the time. They're well, actually the, um, the, uh, um, the base has the Naval base has sailboats you can rent, um, which I have not yet done, but I will do so um, mm-hmm. when, when we're allowed to, when the pandemic is over. So, and yeah. The students are all enrolled or not enrolled. The students are all enlisted in the Navy. Is that true or not? No. So, so they're actually, they're not enlisted. Um, they're all officers. So this is, so this is the weird part. Um, or I guess this is the unusual part. So there's a Naval Academy, which is down in Annapolis, Maryland. And that's yes. where the undergraduates are. And they okay. get a normal liberal arts college education plus, yeah, um, you know, preparation to go into military. And then when they graduate, they'll be officers. And, at the war college, they're all they're all officers already, and so we get the junior, senior level officers. Um, they've used, they've been in you know anywhere from five to fifteen to twenty years uh, already, and wow. they're coming wow. to us. Yeah, so they're coming to us for professional military education, um, which is the equivalent of a master's level degree. And you call it professional military education. So the curriculum is centered on military strategy theory what kind of things um so okay so then when they come through and do our normal programs so there are tons of different programs and i still i will say so um the disclaimer actually i should have two disclaimers here one is that um you and uh, your your uh your show is about philosophers but i'm technically a political theorist so just so no. oh no yeah i know i mean you may want to cut this off at the, yeah. <laughs> now that you know what's so, your phd in in political science so oh okay I'm I'm gonna grandfather you into political philosophy. I think I have that power. Okay, great. Yeah, I mean, I like to think of myself as a political philosopher, but I know that philosophers would not do so. <laughs> would, I, I'm would, very ecumenical. Okay, all right. So, and then the second disclaimer is I've only been at the War College for one year, so my knowledge is still um, still limited. So we have tons. As far as I know, we have lots of different programs, um, but I teach in one where they come in for nine months, they get a master's degree, um, and then they cycle through three different departments. The first department is joint military operations. And so it's really nitty gritty. How do you work with other branches of the military? Um, the second department is the national security affairs, and they're learning a lot about um, the US uh, military, US foreign policy, our interests and our, um, our operations and uh, things, uh, you know, uh, over the world. And then they come to my department, which is strategy and policy. And that's where we do the super long history of, um, of warfare. We start with Thucydides. Wow. <laughs> we do Thucydides in one week, and then we march all the way through um, to, you know, contemporary stuff. And then that's where we're doing both a lot of tactical operations and military history, but also grand strategic thinking. So, so you, you actually 
Like what sort of stuff do you as a political theorist, but more importantly, a philosopher teach <laughs> to these students? Like you, do you teach tactics? <laughs> Weirdly, yes, but that's because, um, so what we have is a, a common curriculum. So everyone in my department, we teach one class and there's a common lecture and then everybody, then you teach your own discussion sections and the discussion sections, um, then you can run those however you want. Everybody emphasizes different things, but there is necessarily a lot of military tactics, a lot of, uh, you know, you know, and then, you know, then, then all of the triremes went, you know, went around the, you know, went around the horn and, you know, and attacked the Athenians and that kind of thing. Um, <laughs> Wait, I, I, I've got so many questions now. So first of all, let, let me, let me just, Go, go back a little bit further. What is your teaching load? Uh, so it is a technically a one-one, but it is a lot more than that um, uh -huh. in, terms of in terms of hours spent, um, just because it's pretty intensive. So how big is this one? Like, is this a class that goes from nine in the morning to five in the afternoon or, or what? Um, so let's see. So when they're in class, they have three, there are, so the students are in class for three hours, three hours on three days a week. Okay. And you're in, you're in class with them three hours, three yeah. days a week as well. Yeah. And there's a common so, lecture. Yeah. So two, so two of those three days are lectures. Um, so they get six hours of lectures and then they get three hours in discussion. Okay. Um, and they get 600 pages of reading a week. Um, and you yeah. do too. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And do they do they do do they do the reading? <laughs> Officially, yes, of course. They read uh -huh. every single page. <laughs> yeah. And if yeah. they don't do the reading, can you impose like corporal punishments on them? Can you make them do push-ups? I wish. You know, back in the day, you probably could. You also probably could beat them back in the day. But um, mm -hmm. but we're you know, it's these, these, yeah. these were the golden days of education. <laughs> Exactly. So it's a 21st century. We don't do that anymore. So yeah, much to our detriment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so, mm -hmm. so, so you have, so this is the, and is it the same course every time? Like in the sense that um, you have a one-one teaching load in both semesters, it's like the same content or is it, is it like a year long seminar kind of thing? Right. Um, no, it's different content for us because we do a junior course and a senior course. And so we get basically two cycles of students. Okay. Um, yeah, so in one term we get the junior officers and then uh, that's a, that, that course has a slightly different emphasis and then the second term we get the senior officers with a more strategic emphasis. Okay, and mm -hmm. how did you, you said you've only been there a year, where were you before and how did you end up at the U.S. Naval War College? <laughs> um, I was out in Hong Kong for many years um, teaching at the University of Hong Kong um, and that was actually much more um, yeah, what you'd recognize as a much more traditional academic job. I was um, I was teaching political theory classes, um, also classes in international stuff. Yeah, um. is that the concentration <laughs> officially? International yeah. stuff. Okay. <laughs> so international stuff. Um, yeah, so I was there for quite a while, and, um, and I, then I came back and ended up at the War College. I probably because of the stuff I work on. Um, probably because you know maybe I'm the only, maybe I'm one of the, you know, yeah, few female political theorists that they can they can tolerate <laughs> I don't know so yeah so 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 you um did you do just war theory that that was your concentration for a while now you do authoritarianism um mm -hmm. when you were like was that kind of crucial to being able to have the job at the U.S. Naval War College like the are all the AOS's basically insofar as it goes to philosophy 
are all the AOSs in like military ethics or just war theory, that kind of stuff? Or can it be just political philosophy more broadly or? No, I mean, so what's weird is that there is a separate school where they do teach ethics and that was not where I was hired. Um, mm -hmm. I was hired in the strategy and policy department where I think, um, you know, some portion of the administration maybe in theory would like a little more emphasis on ethics, but in reality, it's tough to, <laughs> to get that into the curriculum and it's tough to convince um, some of my colleagues and certainly a lot of the students that, you know, ethics is actually important. Um, yeah. So, so it's, it is actually still a bit of a mystery to me why I was hired. <laughs> okay. Um, but it, was this, was this, like, I don't recall seeing, like, I was on the job market a long time ago, back in 2008. I don't recall seeing advertisements from anything like the U.S. Naval War College. Do they advertise in the normal places that other philosophy departments advertise in? And, and is it like a big open search, or is it they contact you? Yeah, no, it was a big open search, um, but you probably wouldn't have seen it because they wouldn't have, <clears throat> they would not have advertised for a philosopher, because I don't uh -huh. think they were looking for... I don't think they were looking for somebody with a philosophy background. It just so happens yeah. that <clears throat> the stuff I work on um, works well with their interests. Um, and it was probably a surprise to them <laughs> as uh -huh. well as to me. Yeah. <laughs> and just like, how has the experience been for you? Like you were at a traditional department in Hong Kong, which mm -hmm. I assume was like the standard teaching load of two, two, three, three, four, four, whatever. You probably mm -hmm. had courses that were about 75 minutes long, two days a week mm -hmm. or whatever, and teaching standard political theory stuff. And then you go to the U.S. Naval War College. Is it is it intriguing, pleasant, shocking? What sort of what sort of adjectives come to mind? All of the above. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah, it was weird because, I mean, the University of Hong Kong was a great place, and, um, but it was also if you're coming from a traditional American uh, academic setting, then Hong Kong is a little weird. It's, it's a mix of the, I like to call it, um, I like to describe it as Chinese bureaucracy layered on top of British bureaucracy. And so if you can imagine that. <laughs> fusion. Yeah, yes, fusion, exactly. Yeah. Um, so it was weird being there too, although, you know, it was, you know, it was, a, it was a traditional academic institution. Then you come to a work college. I, I didn't think it could get weirder, but it got weirder. <laughs> Well, yeah, let, let me let me talk about ask you about the University of Hong Kong. Is that mm -hmm. is that a private university or like a state university? It's a public university. Yeah. Okay. And it, and it is the old um, it was the it was Hong Kong's first university. It's the, old, the original colonial university. And is when you were teaching like when you were teaching there, how independent was it from like the Chinese Communist Party? Um, so on a day-to-day -day basis, it's pretty independent. Um, things have changed now because I, I left imagine. in 20, yeah, things I left in 2017, and things were already changing by then. Uh, and I have I have heard I've heard quite a bit um, from my friends and former colleagues. So um, on a day-to-day, -day, it was pretty independent back then. Although there were you know there were things that were happening already behind the scenes, um, you know, uh, certain types of people getting hired or not getting their contracts renewed or, you know, um, certain types of graduate students making it into your program that maybe you had questions about, you know, mm -hmm. so. I, yeah. you're, you're being diplomatic in your language, but is it basically like there were people who didn't necessarily seem academically all that qualified, who were nonetheless enthusiastic about certain, let's just say, governmental goals? 
who were getting success in a perhaps unexpected way. And then there were people who were say like academically quite gifted, but who maybe weren't as enthusiastic about certain governmental policies who seemed to just not have things work out for them, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, there was some of that. And it's, and it's hard, so I mean, part of the reason, I mean, there are many reasons to be diplomatic about this. One reason is because, um, especially in, a, in, in Hong Kong use case back then, um, it was, it's difficult to pinpoint exact causes because it was also going through this phase where it was transitioning from being a very teaching focused university to being much more research oriented. And then so you can always say, well, this person didn't, you know, didn't meet our now astronomical research standards. Right. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. And I'm sure that kind of thing happens in U.S. universities, too, in, in different ways. Mm -hmm. But yeah, you know, with the U.S. Naval War College, that is officially right um, mm -hmm. run by the U.S. Navy. Yes. And so that's got a different governing structure from even a state university like mine. So do, do you have certain kinds of constraints on your academic freedom? Are you supposed to sign a, like not exactly a statement of faith, but a loyalty oath or something like that? Like what sort of mm -hmm. constraints or if any exist there that don't exist at um, what you call traditional American universities? Right. Um, yeah, so there is, I mean, there is a standard loyalty oath. I, I assume it's standard to anybody who works for the military, for, you know, the military, um, and even for civilians. And I had to, uh, I had to say that um, when I started. Ostensibly, we have freedom, you know, academic freedom and freedom of speech. Um, but it's tricky, you know, because you also, oh, I'm sorry. And at this point, I also need to, um, to state my disclaimer, which is I speak only for myself and not for the US Naval War College or Department of Navy or the federal government. <laughs> so now I can Got say it. anything. Um, well, now I have very different questions. Right. All right, <laughs> so, go ahead though. Yeah, so officially, you know, as, as a civilian academic, you are free to say whatever you want as long as you, um, you know, you provide that disclaimer. In practice, there is certainly pressure, you know, um, both more and less subtle, depending on what you say and who you are and what you've done in the past, um, more or less pressure to be diplomatic. Um, mm. And there have been some cases, oh, actually, <laughs> you know, one of my colleagues apparently has gotten really famous um, uh, for oh. speaking his mind and getting into um, getting into trouble. And um, Have I know, heard of this person? Probably, his name is Tom Nichols and he wrote- Oh, is he um, the death of expertise guy? Yes, yes. Okay. Um, yeah, and I think he and I think he's been rather vocal in print about um, writing for the Atlantic and various places. Um, you know, being critical of uh, Donald Trump, who was our commander in chief, right? And so right. it's a tricky, it's a tricky thing. Um, officially, he can say whatever he wants. Unofficially, people are not happy about it. Um, and uh -huh. so, and as a result, then you know, the rest of us will sometimes get a little uh, reminders <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> about, you know. Um, yeah, not being so provocative. So. Would that, how would that unhappiness manifest in the sense, like would, would, would Nichols be required to have a meeting with the dean, if you have a dean or the dean equivalent and would be told, look, you're allowed to say this, but you know, you have, you are an employee of the federal government. So you have certain uh, requirements on your speech that any other employee would have when it comes to criticizing their boss. Uh, 
that mm -hmm. kind of thing? Or, or are, they, are they worried that it undermines the credibility of the college to the students or to the public or what? But you probably yeah. don't privy to these things. Yeah, so I do. My, so I have not actually met Nichols um, personally. So but my understanding is that he has had, you know, he's been called into the dean's office in the past. I, I you know, not for sure, but I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure stuff, something like this has happened, um, you know, where and, you know, and but as far as, you know, he's, he's still talking. So <laughs> well, he's certainly exercising his legal rights. Um, and yeah, there is concern about, um, you know, I mean, there's concern about good order and discipline and, you know, can you faithfully serve, um, you know, can you faithfully serve if you're being critical all the time um, of your superiors and, you know, whether you're setting a bad example for, you know, or, you know, corrupting their ideas. And yeah, there are all these concerns. Um, some of them have more merit than others, I think. So, you know. But are, are there are there certain positions that if you took would be at odds with the loyalty oath? Let's say, for instance, that you were a revolutionary communist who thought there should be a communist overthrow of the U.S. government. Would that mm -hmm. be at odds with your loyalty oath? Because I remember in the 50s, at least, there were loyalty oaths that said right. you couldn't have that position. But right. Yeah, that's interesting. If you were a revolutionary communist. So, I mean... I guess my position is that, so I guess my interpretation of that is that if you were simply writing um, revolutionary communist philosophy, that that in and of itself would not be at odds. Um, now, the JAG may disagree <laughs> with that assessment, but I mean, I think, yeah, mere, so for me, but I'm pretty extreme on issues of free speech. Um, yeah. So um, that that in and of itself would not violate your loyalty oath. Now, if you took any actions, um, that would be a separate matter. And if you were espousing, if you were promoting that in the classroom, as opposed to just presenting it as one possible view among you know, others mm -hmm. um, to consider, that might be a problem. Um, but I, I think even talking about that view in class shouldn't be a problem. And what, um, if, the, what if you were, say, pro-ISIS? Like, I don't know that there are too many academics who are pro-ISIS. Um, I certainly don't think ISIS is very pro-academic, but um, right. <laughs> if, what if you were like, you, you thought that they were like um, an anti-colonial freedom fighting movement or something like that, that, that was using overly extreme methods to achieve their goal, but their heart mm -hmm. is in the right place given like grasping US imperialism or something like that. Would that cause trouble? I think that caused some trouble, to be honest. I think so. You know, I, it's possible some of my colleagues think that. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it'd be, it'd be an unpopular view. Um, it would right, certainly get right. some pushback in the classroom, but, um, but at least in my department. Now, every, uh, the other departments, every department's different. And I think in my department, the strategy and policy department that I'm in, I think we have a, we have a little more leeway to say controversial things like that. And I think that has some, has a lot to do with our history. Yeah, speaking of, of pushback from the students in the classroom, are the students armed? <laughs> or is Not anybody as, armed on campus? Right. <laughs> not as far as I know, but, uh -huh. okay. <laughs> so, but, but it's not, apparently it's not that difficult to bring stuff in. It's, yeah. Okay, so, so they don't, so I mean, because it's a war college, I don't know the extent to which people walk around in uniform and if they walk around in uniform, whether they're supposed to have firearms or anything. I know so little about the military. 
I mean, yeah. I think you can tell by my questions, right? No, I mean, well, I mean, I had that question too um, about whether they'd be wearing their uniforms and apparently they do not. And that is for the benefit of the students themselves. Cause we actually, so we team teach with, um, so civilian academics team teach with military personnel. And so they're, they're actually active duty military people who are assigned to teach at the war college and they're military professors. Um, and, you know, and they usually have gone through our program at the War College in the past, and so ha they have the they have that same master's degree. Um, but the awkward part is that so officially, I mean, we civilians are kind of outside of their hierarchy, right? Although that is a whole separate um, issue if, if that's something you want to ask about. <laughs> so, I, I was getting there. Yeah. Yes. Um, but then, so but then, what happens is that sometimes you'll have military professors um, who are lower ranked than some of the students, right? Um, uh, and then, oh, so that, wow. yeah, yeah. So that can make it a little awkward um, for the military professor and the students. And so my so nobody wears uniforms when you're coming to class and we go by a first name where everybody's on a first name basis. And I think that is to make things clear to the students that they're in an academic classroom setting, they're outside of their normal hierarchy, they can't pull rank in the classroom, you know, either with each other or with the military professor. Um, mm -hmm. I think that is, that's difficult for some of the students. Interesting. <laughs> so, yeah, um, but it, but, but, but yeah, but not wearing uniforms and not, ha and going on a first name basis does help them with that. So my wife works for the federal government. She works mm -hmm. for the Securities and Exchange Commission and she gets, I don't know what to call it. I'm probably going to get, choose the wrong word, but I think clearance, like there are levels like nine, 10, 11, 12, 13. Do you get that kind of clearance too, where you have access to sensitive information and there's some information you don't have access to that kind of thing? Yeah, so my job requires me to get security clearance, just the basic level of security clearance. Okay. Um, yeah, and uh, even though I'm actually, I personally am not teaching anything that is of a sensitive nature, um, but you know, but now I have it, which means I can go to um, you know classified briefings. Uh, there are there are costs of going to classified briefings because if you do go to classified briefings, then you have to um, you have to think about how you talk about things that you already knew before you went in, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, um, and also if you do any academic publishing um, that involves knowledge that you gained from this from the classified briefing, then that's a whole separate legal problem. So. This is a very different kind of sensitivity training at your university yes. than at mine. <laughs> right. <laughs> so Yeah, we um, may one day get your type of sensitivity training, but um, so far they're not, uh, not, not too much of that. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm curious to see how that goes. Um, okay. So let's pivot to the, the Hoover Institution. Um, what's So you're there at a somewhat unusual time. I believe your term is at the Hoover Institution is one year. Is that right? Yeah. And it started in 2020 and it's mm -hmm. ending, what, in May of 2021 or something like that? Yeah, August. So. August of 2021. So mm -hmm. have, have you actually met any of the scholars of the Hoover Institution in person? No. <laughs> yeah, no. it's been, the whole thing has been, I mean, yeah, we were remote when I arrived and we'll probably be remote when I leave. And that's been very sad, actually. Yeah. <laughs> and how do you, if you want, so there's, I mean, it's a famous institution. There's lots of prominent scholars there. If you want to talk to a prominent scholar, can you do that? Can you say, hey, I'd like to set up a Zoom meeting. And because you're also at the Hoover Institution, they'll be willing to meet with you. 
Yeah, so I did meet a few people um, in the beginning um, and we had very nice conversations and, uh, but you know, everybody's busy with stuff. And so even though we have common interests, we don't, yeah, because we haven't run into each other in the hallway, it's been kind of rough. Um, I've been attending workshops and things, but also the way they set it up is that you can't see other people who are attending uh, the the workshop, and so there's you just have no idea who else is there except for the speakers. Uh, oh, so, you can't even see their names of the attendees. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh wow. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. And it's hard yeah. to accidentally run into people on Zoom. Exactly. Oh, what are you <laughs> saying? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just cyber stalking you. So, so yeah. yeah, I just showed up in your personal room. Yeah. So there's a small, I mean, there's a small group of fellows. So there are, um, there are, I think there are eight of us total national fellows who are here this year. And so we've had weekly workshops and weekly happy hours, or sorry, oh. monthly workshops um, and monthly happy hours. But, uh, you know, it's not the same. It, um, yeah. The workshops have been have been good, they've been productive, um, but yeah, it's not quite the same. And also most of the other people who are, most of the other fellows do work that's pretty different from mine. Um, so it's been intellectually interesting, um, but but I haven't been able to spend a lot of time talking to people that have been relevant to my project. Yeah. Speaking of which, what's mm -hmm. your project? <laughs> what a segue, right? Right, so that's a good one. Um, so my, my current project is about soft authoritarianism in East Asia um, and, the, and the ways in which that differs from other types of soft authoritarianism. And then also now because of recent political changes, how the authoritarianism is no longer so soft and what that means. Mm -hmm. So what so, is soft authoritarianism? And I assume there's a hard authoritarianism. Mm -hmm. So what's, what's yeah. the difference? So I guess hard authoritarianism is what you normally think of with a dictatorship, right? You have, you know, a leader with extensive power. He can, you know, there's, there's, you know, there, there are no rights, there's no free speech, there's no rule of law, I can throw you in prison or, or the gulag and stuff. And um, so that's kind of pretty classic, you know, um, authoritarianism. Yeah. And so what I think of as soft authoritarianism is authoritarianism that is a lot of it is hidden behind the scenes. And so um, there's actually already this big, there's a big existing literature about hybrid regimes and competitive authoritarianism where, for example, you might have, um, an authoritarian system, but there's still there's still elections. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there's still a, a ostensibly a democracy. So Iran would be something like that, right? Um, would would Russia be something like that? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, and then there, then you know you get into questions of how competitive is competitive, right? And there might be different types of um, you know both degree and quality of competition. Um, so so yeah, I don't. So soft authoritarianism is just a term. I don't want. I, I'm I'm a, I, I'm trying to find a better term for it because I don't want to I don't want to bring another I don't um, if there's something existing that's already covers this covers what I'm the phenomenon I'm talking about I want to use that but I haven't found anything that's quite right so I'm using that soft authoritarianism soft authoritarianism as a placeholder right now and so what I think is different about the East Asian model is that it's um, it's it's very economically vibrant. So these economies are very economically vibrant, very diverse. And so unlike say Russia, which is a petro state, right? Mm -hmm. And a failing and a failing economy, um, you, know, uh, you know, you have places like formerly Taiwan, not anymore, um, you know, but Hong Kong now, um, Singapore, uh, where you have, yeah, 
broad diverse economies. You have the population that is generally generally well off um, and not dependent on the state. And so the contrast there would be say Saudi Arabia, right? Where you have, it's, it too is a petro state, but the, the government controls all of the all the resources and they hand out, you know, living allowances to a certain portion of the population. So you don't have the same kind of broad wealth, you know, um, that you have in a place like Hong Kong, even though there's tons of economic inequality. Um, and then the other big difference, I think, is that in East Asia, you have societies now that are pretty modern. They're modern socially and, um, you know, culturally and politically. And that's not the case. I mean, Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia and and Russia and Saudi Arabia especially is feudal, basically. Yeah. <laughs> it's a feudal society. Um, uh, Russia is very pre-modern culturally in a lot of ways. So, um, so yeah. So that's why I'm interested in the East Asian model, if you can call it a model of mm -hmm. authoritarianism. And but the but the ultimate thesis is that a lot of this stuff, a lot of the harm um, uh, that's that's done with the, the harm from the authoritarianism in these systems is hidden because it's so soft, because when you go there, it looks like a really modern and progressive society, right? If you if you go to Hong Kong for a week, <laughs> you go to Singapore for a week, and you hang out, you eat good food, everybody, you know, people, women work, um, you know, people are educated or skyscrapers. It just, it, everything looks very progressive mm -hmm. um, on the surface. So I actually want to go back a bit do you distinguish between authoritarianism and totalitarianism? Mm -hmm. And is authoritarianism more when the government has non-democratic authority over traditional governmental roles, whereas totalitarianism is when the government has non-governmental authority over both traditional and non-traditional governmental roles, something like that, where totalitarianism would be a more sweeping kind of government involvement in everybody's lives and authoritarianism would be just when it comes to certain political liberties or something like that? Would that be a yeah. rough distinction? Okay. Yeah. And so would um, South Korea and Japan, would they be examples of soft authoritarianism or not? No, uh, yeah, I think, um, yeah, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan have all transitioned away from that. Um, okay. And I would, I would just call them all liberal democracies um, with you know, conservative populations, socially conservative, mm -hmm. um, but liberal, liberal democratic and very, very stably so. Yeah. And so then what would be the difference between a place like Singapore and a place like South Korea? You know, in terms of standard of living, they seem about the same. Maybe Singapore is even a little higher. Of course, Singapore is a lot smaller. But, um, you know, education levels, they're both about the same technology. So what kind of government involvement, and you say it's behind the scenes, so I don't even know if it's easy to say what kind of government involvement there is. But like, do they have free elections in Singapore? Um, or I don't know where Thailand comes in either because it's a, a little bit behind technologically, you know, these countries. But um, so what, what are you, like, give me an example of a soft, a soft authoritarian um, instrument or state of affairs that wouldn't exist in a liberal democracy. Yeah, so, um, so it's really tricky because um, in Japan, you did have a one party, democracy for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> so, but the, I guess the, the real difference, I guess, with something like Singapore is that um, in Singapore, what's strange about Singapore is that the elections themselves are incredibly competitive, but the PAP, the People's Action Party, controlled all the resources. And so what they did in order to stay in power was to 
funnel basically cut off you know districts that didn't vote for them right um, in terms of resource allocation and so it became pretty clear if you wanted want your roads fixed <laughs> you're gonna vote for the PAP um, that is basically just you know um, but so that is less of an issue I think than some of the other problems um, uh, so I think the best example of the soft authoritarianism in Singapore would be restrictions on speech. Ostensibly, there's free speech, but you can't criticize the government. And now, if you do criticize the government, because it's not a hard authoritarian or totalitarian place, they're not going to throw you in a gulag, but the government will basically sue you into bankruptcy for libel, and they never lose. <laughs> so... Um, and they never yeah. lose because they have so much more money than you, or they never lose because the courts will always find in their favor or both? Yeah, the, yes, both. Yeah, the law okay. is on their side. The law is on their side. So, um, and do yeah. people criticize the government there, or have they sort of like learned their lesson? Um, people have mostly learned their lesson, and, but, you know, occasionally, every so often, there, you know, somebody will say something. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then you'll and, get, yeah. And is it accidental? Like, is it the sort of thing where people are trying not to criticize the government in ways that will get them into trouble, but they still do anyway, because they're like, they said, you know, oh, we really thought the vaccine would be here, but it hasn't come here yet. That's too bad. And then all of a sudden the government sues them, or is it more people know exactly how to avoid this? For the most part, people know how to avoid it. Um, and the cases that I've seen recently, I haven't seen all, I, um, I'm, I've, I'm sure I've missed some cases, but the cases I've seen recently, they've been intentional. Um, yeah, they know what they're doing. They know they're going to get in trouble with the government. <laughs> and they do it anyway because they just don't like the state of affairs and they want to draw attention to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and how does the population of Singapore, I know this is very Singapore centric, but I've always found Singapore fascinating. How does the population of Singapore react to this? Is this, are they generally in favor of it or, or what? Yeah, so that actually, that I don't know. I don't know what the polling has been like. Well, and in polling in a place like this is going to be <laughs> Right. <laughs> be suspect. Um, I think in general, um, that's the other interesting thing about, um, uh, well, I think actually with kind of this rising authoritarianism everywhere is that there are plenty of people who are pretty happy with the state of affairs because they're willing, they want, they're happy to make the trade-off, right? I mean, yeah. what they see is, um, and if you live in Singapore, most people have, um, have a good life. You know, um, things are orderly and neat and clean and you have, you know, um, you know, high standard of living and, you know, things are safe. And so um, they see that as the as the price, um, maybe not even a price, maybe just one of the benefits. <laughs> yeah, that's so. the benefit of the price. Mm -hmm. Yeah. OK, yeah. so so you're studying soft authoritarianism mm -hmm. and I feel like now I have a pretty good idea of what it is. So is the is the is the, 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 the research focus something like how viable is this as a model for states to adopt? Um, what sort of criticisms can people give against this or how can they defend it? Uh, what's, what sort of research questions are you pursuing about soft authoritarianism? Yeah, so the main research question was about, so initially when I started this project and this was um, before, I started it before the 2019 protests in Hong Kong. So mm -hmm. um, before everything started going to hell, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, my original focus was about all the hidden harms behind um, of the soft authoritarianism that, you know, there may not appear to be um, restrictions on free press, but there actually are. And what does it mean that there are all these um, 
soft restrictions on free press? What does it mean for the population? What kinds of, um, yeah, what, what kind of harms are being, um, are being visited on you that, um, and what does, and also then the question of trade-offs, right? Um, what trade-offs are people making? What trade-offs are legitimate to be making um, in exchange for, you know, a lot, um, you know, uh, for astronomical economic growth. Um, so there were lots of normative questions originally. And then now that things have changed in, in Hong Kong, which was my major case, um, I'm kind of rethinking, I'm, re I'm rethinking the framing of it. And, and, I, and I do, I think now I'm more focused on how sustainable a soft authoritarian system actually is, because that's actually one of the, and this ties into the broader geopolitical thing, you know, this is, um, you know, if you're, if you're talking about the competition, the geopolitical competition between different models of governance, right? Mm -hmm. um, Beijing, the Beijing model. So China's not actually soft authoritarian, but they like to present as soft. Oh, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they like to, they, so they don't mind being seen as authoritarian as long as it's soft mm -hmm. authoritarian. Right. Yeah. Okay. That's the they, yeah. So they don't, they don't try to, I mean, I haven't really followed, and I'm going to be mean here, but I haven't really followed their propaganda. Mm -hmm. And is their propaganda, their propaganda doesn't try to defend them, uh, define themselves as like a democracy. Are they trying to basically say, look, democracies don't work. We work. We're not mm -hmm. a democracy, but we get the job done. The people are happy. That's, is that how they present themselves? Um, yes. Although ironically, they're a people's republic. So, <laughs> right. so yeah, despite being, you know, ostensibly the most democratic of all, they're, you know, they are pretty clear about not being a democracy. Um, okay. Yes. And so, um, but they do want to present as soft authoritarian, and um, and weirdly, you know, Singapore is one of the models that they that they hold up themselves um, as well. But although Singapore is, I think it's not, and you can't you can't recreate a Singapore. But um, but basically, so then, so they're try they want to present this soft authoritarian model to the world, and I think that actually that's unsustainable. It's a it's it's not a stable it's not a stable equilibrium, and it's got to go one way or the other. It's got to go either more authoritarian ultimately or less authoritarian. Um, and I think in Hong Kong you see it going, swinging, um, more authoritarian now. Singapore I think is actually going to loosen up. Um, it's going to take a while, but I I think I think we're starting to see the signs of that. Okay. So 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 two questions. Um, why do you think Singapore is going to loosen up? What is it about their version of soft authoritarianism that makes it unsustainable as an authoritarianism. And what is about, the second question is, what is it about China's authoritarianism that makes it unsustainable as a soft one in the opposite direction? Why, why do they have to go harder? Why is Singapore able to go softer? Yeah. Unless, unless China is able to go softer as well and they just don't want to for some reason. Yeah, well, I think that's true. They can, they just don't, they, they don't want to. Um, but I'll get back to that in a second. Um, so Singapore, I think, is in the long run going to go softer because they're ultimately they're not willing to throw people into gulags, actually. Um, and so now that Lee Kuan Yew has died, um, a lot of the a lot of the restrictions in place in Singapore they were being held together by um, the history of Singapore. Um, and being, you know, just runt country that had been kicked out of Malaysia, um, mm -hmm. you know, with no resources and just had to build itself from nothing. Um, and the, the force, you know, the, the strength of Lee Kuan Yew's leadership holding it together. Um, and, you know, and them being incredibly poor and 
you know, have only been newly, um, newly wealthy. Now you have all confluence of all sorts of factors. You have a population that's pretty wealthy um, for the most part. They want, and um, they, it's been, it's a pretty peaceful place. Um, not a lot of existential threats anymore now that we're far enough from World War II and, um, and Lee Kuan Yew has died. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and his sons, you know, don't his son um, who has succeed, succeeded him does not have nearly that moral force and charisma. And so you can see, the, so the reason I think it's going to get softer is because he's already having to start to engage in normal retail politics, you know, going out, pressing the flesh, um, you know, uh, you know, um, ingratiating himself with the population. That's not something Lee Kuan Yew ever did, right? He told the population what to think and what to do and how to behave. So yeah. things are going to, things are made different for his son. Um, and he is in, in order to stay in power, he's going to have to loosen up, I think. Um, so, but that's a kind of a very long run projection. Um, yeah. In the short run, things will, things will look very stable. Um, in China's case, you know, I mean, um, it's all about the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, um, their, their one, their overriding principle is to stay in power. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and once you loosen things up, um, there's a lot of instability in, in the society. Um, there, a lot and a lot more potential instability. So um, I think they they will not loosen up because they fear that any kind of loosening will lead to more resistance to them, to the party. So let me ask about two. One real quick question about Lee Kuan Yew. Did he throw people into gulags or not? I think it may be early in the early Singaporean days, um, there were, there were definitely political prisoners, um, mm-hmm. but not, not more recently. Okay. Yeah. So, so the fact that Singapore doesn't do that doesn't represent a break from how they used to do things under Lee Kuan Yew. It just mm-hmm. is, that was how Lee Kuan Yew himself evolved. Um, mm-hmm. So the other question is, and this is going to sound like a very naive question, but why is the Chinese communist party afraid of losing power? Are they afraid they will be murdered? Are they afraid that they, that, is it just that they like power so much and they're, they're not used to not getting their way and they're afraid of not getting their way? What kind of outcome are they predicting for themselves if they lose power? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, if they were smart, they would be afraid of being murdered. Yeah, uh-huh. I mean, yeah, all dictators should be afraid of being murdered. <laughs> right. So, yeah, um, and, uh, and that's, you know, that, that could happen, yeah. So, so, so okay, so there, there's enough unrest and enough, um, I don't know if there, are, if I want to say there are different power centers in China, but there's at least enough unrest in China that if for some reason the CCP got softer and softer, this could lead to armed, I don't know if I want to say revolt, but maybe insurrections or assassination attempts, that kind of stuff. Yeah, they certainly fear that. Um, I think it's kind of weird because on a day-to-day basis, you get both things. It is, is both very um, orderly and calm, but then also, yeah, lots of little pockets of mm-hmm. of, of dissatisfaction. Yeah. So in Russia, is Russia soft authoritarian or are they competitive model? Or are they hard authoritarian? I, I mean, at this point, I not so soft anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But don't, don't I, I, I don't know Russia that well. I mean, that's an understatement. Actually, let me take that back. I'm not sure they were ever all that soft because um, okay. they went from base, you know, I mean, they were, so, I mean, Soviet Union was not soft. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Um, but like, I got, you know, there's this guy, Navalny, is that his name? Mm-hmm. Who is very poisoned from what I recall. And, yes. um, but he was able to some extent to be pretty vocal and uh, Kasparov, 
was able to be a pretty vocal critic of Putin. Although I guess Kasparov had to leave Russia. Yeah, Kasparov's migrated. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I always thought the fact that he was like this national hero for Russia was going to be something that would protect him in a way. Because if, say, Putin assassinated him or had him assassinated, whatever you want to say, um, then uh, I feel like he would get a lot of pushback from the population. I'm not, maybe I'm wrong about that. But I, I feel like Russia likes their national heroes. Like if uh, Alexander Karelin got assassinated, I think that would go over poorly. Uh, but what do I know? I mean, I'm not a Russia expert. And so I'm wondering, are there those kinds of um, pockets of resistance in China too? If, a, if, if, if Yao Ming, for instance, was critical of the government, what would happen to him? Um, yeah, if he were critical of the government, he would be silenced. Um, yeah, the system in the system in China is a little tighter. So I guess it's weird because you, yeah, you have, uh, yeah. So in Russia, right, you have you you have some guy who is trying to pretend to be democratically elected, who's Putin, um, who is basically assassinating all of his rivals, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, or trying to assassinate them. But you also don't have that kind of. Um, you don't have that kind of strict control on um, on social media and on internet access and forms of communication that you do in China. So it's really different. So for example, I mean, Navalny, you know, they, um, him and his crew, they sent in these drones and tape and, um, and came out with, and taped a secret, you know, Putin pleasure palace <laughs> that nobody knew about. Um, and then, and those videos were everywhere. Um, they were all over, and including in Russia, you could get those videos, right? Um, and so that then allows more um, resistance, uh, overt resistance to build up against um, against Putin. Whereas in China, you could never get away with something like that. The you know the censors would shut that down because you know they they um, and then so somebody like a Yao Ming, if he were critical of the government, um, it would it'd be very short lived. <laughs> and when you say short lived, it would be like he says something all trace of it gets deleted from Chinese media and he's mm-hmm. silenced in the sense that he literally can't get the message out, not that he's like bound and gagged and put into a jail. Right, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that might also happen, depends on what he said, but it really is that he he is silenced from the news and all, you know, communications. And then in addition, in, in addition to scrubbing everything that he said, um, they will also send out, um, you know, an army of propagandists, right, to flood you know, the news and the, um, and communications with pro-government, um, you know, uh, discussions and anti, you know, anti, anti-dissident, um, talk. So, yeah. And how, how, how credulous is the population of China to the pro-government propaganda? I mean, I, I read this book called I'm Not Born Yesterday by Hugo Mercier, who is, mm-hmm. makes the claim that most people in fact aren't very gullible, but what they are is if I'm reading him correctly, they're credulous towards people they trust and incredibly suspicious towards people they don't trust. And it's very hard for people they're suspicious of to convince them of anything. And it's very hard for people they're credulous towards to lose their trust. Um, so is there, are there like, is there a large segment of the Chinese population that truly believes what the government says and a large population that's just won't believe anything they say, they're all the Epoch Times readers and stuff like that or, or what? I don't know. And, um, and that, yeah. And that's because, you know, you, um, the polling, you know, surveys in China, I think are, you have to, you have to take all of them with a grain of salt. Um, I do think that 
there's a larger portion that of the population that does um, that does have faith in the government and does support them um, than the opposite. But I couldn't even begin to guess right. <laughs> what the breakdown is. Yeah. yeah, and then even you know support for the government that looks different. Um, I think that that there's enormous variation within that segment of the population how much support there is for local government versus um, central government and you know and on what issues. Yeah. So, so is then what happened in China that they were they were moving in a soft authoritarian direction, and they mm -hmm. began to see, oh crap, this is going to be bad for us. So then they started mm -hmm. moving back to a hard authoritarian direction. So, um, so I think so. I think that's what happened in Hong Kong. Um, China itself has always been hard, and that hasn't changed. Um, you know, they're not they're not doing the Cultural Revolution and uh, the Great Leap Forward anymore. And so, in that sense, I guess it's gotten better. Yeah, <laughs> it's gotten less. Yeah, softer, but it's all relative. Um, yeah. yeah, it's tungsten, um, not titanium. Right. You know, when you're not murdering, you know, 30 million people at one go, then yeah, you know, things are softer. Yeah. You know, <laughs> so. they, that's all expectations management. Like we're exactly. so proud of you for only killing five million people. <laughs> I know. Okay. Good job. Good job. Um, yeah. So in Hong Kong, I think what the weird thing was, that, yeah, they were happy to kind of let it move along, and do, you know, and it. You know, I, I think they were happy to let things um, percolate behind the scenes. And then, then you had a whole series of protests. And um, as they got more serious, then I think, um, uh, yeah, Beijing stepped in and said, this is, we can't tolerate this anymore. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So, then, yeah. So in Hong Kong, what you, I think the, the, um, the trajectory is what you described. And so, so your thesis is basically soft authoritarian. Soft authoritarianism is not sustainable for very long. You're either going to get non-authoritarian, or or you're going to get hard authoritarian. Um, I guess, yeah. And now, now the question is, how long is very long, right? Um, I'm because... going to say fifty years is the longest it can go. <laughs> I just made that up. Um, yeah. Well, you know, actually, it's a good one because, um, yeah, Hong Kong was promised, um, you know, uh, autonomy for fifty years, and they didn't last that long. So. <laughs> Yeah. So, so that's, they lasted, that seems like a good outside barrier. Um, so they lasted about uh, 20 years, right? Like they were yeah. handed over in 97 and then mm -hmm. they basically started collapsing in 2017, you said. And then the protests started happening in response and then. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I guess the we should go by the national, if we want a hard date, the national security law was implemented in 2020. So, you know, 23 years. Um, 23 years. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. And so um, how long do you think hard authoritarianism can last? Forever. I mean, okay. North Korea seems to be doing it, but exactly. I think they had North a lot Korea's of luck too, right? They yes. almost lost it in the 90s. Mm -hmm. And then they, they had some good strokes of luck and managed to stay in power. And I don't know how long this guy's going to last, um, but he's young. Yeah. I wouldn't he, call him healthy, but no. I'd call him young. Yeah. Yeah, he's young. I mean, the Chinese Communist Party, they've been going for, um, you know, it's been over 70 years now that since they've been in power. So, but they seem to have done a lot better than any other hard authoritarian regime I'm aware of. They seem to have done like the Soviet Union was highly productive of certain things, but they were also very bad at lots of other things. And it seems like I could be wrong. I might be listening to too much Kaiser Kuo, but it seems like uh, China is doing pretty well in a host of areas in terms of material comforts, technology, that kind of stuff. Not, of course, political stuff, but like. In terms of a political stuff, even that is impressive. I think the the social what is it? What is their social media 
site called We Wo, We. Oh, Weibo, Weibo, WeChat. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, mm -hmm. that that seems to have been a really successful innovation for maintaining political control in a way that the Soviets could have only dreamed of. Um, so, do you think that that they'll be able to keep both hard authoritarianism? and increasing material prosperity? And if so, do you think they're gonna become a very attractive model to lots of governments over the world? Yeah, I mean, I think they already are an attractive model and that's part of the danger. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Who, who's uh, finding them attractive? Um, would be authoritarian everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> right, it, it, but, but are, there, are there any you have in mind who are like, because I, I don't know how the world reacted to China's performance during COVID because on the one hand, I mean, I know people are gonna call me credulous, but their lockdowns did seem very effective for halting the spread of COVID. But on the other hand, I've heard that their vaccine hasn't been very good. And I've also heard that they were doing things to other governments like Australia to try to undermine those governments' COVID performance by like having runs on supplies in those countries and that kind of stuff, which I'm guessing did not earn them goodwill with those countries. So how do you think their, their COVID performance has affected the um, attractiveness of the hard authoritarian model they're using. Yeah, it's a mixed bag. I mean, so had COVID not, you know, what we think originated in China, I think it would be all, all upside for them. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I think the real, you know, um, uh, the real challenge for them is that, you know, it seems to have originated in China. Um, people are really unhappy about that. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, but otherwise, they would be able to say, look at, yeah, look at all the things that we did to tamp down on this, um, you know, their vaccine, even though, I mean, it's actually still, their vaccine, we think is, you know, 50% um, effective, which actually would be pretty good if it weren't for the mRNA vaccines that we developed. So, you know, and right. yeah, so, um, you know, but for their bad luck, um, they could come out, they could have come out of this looking Really good, and they were looking good before, right? I mean, the idea that you can have um, type, you know, political controls and a single-party state, um, but with a growing economy um, and lots of development, is attractive to basically every country that is um, still developing. <laughs> so, and all of their governments, and even you know, even countries that are already developed. I mean, you know, a bunch of the kind of populist, authoritarian. Um, trends in you know eastern europe for example they're different because they're populist and china is not a populist system but you know that model um you know is uh they, they bear some similarities and you know plenty um plenty attractive in hungary poland um mm -hmm. but now your your former boss uh donald trump he from what i recall was pretty antagonistic towards china uh that's at least how it was presented in the media with the trade war <laughs> He, now, the way I've heard it described is that he was a lot more bullish on China than a lot of other American politicians in that, perhaps because of his own authoritarian impulses, he thought, hey, this could really work. They're going to eat our lunch, I think was the phrase he used a lot. And he, was, he seemed to be way more worried about them than Biden did as an actual competitor to our authority. Um, and I get the sense that a lot of Eastern European populists... Well, certainly Bolsonaro and Duterte, I don't know about Orban, but I got the sense that a lot of these new populist right-wing movements uh, looked up to Trump. Maybe I'm wrong about that and took cues from him, in which case that might put pressure on their liking anything from China. But is that how it's panned out? 
Or do you think Orban is, now that Trump's gone, Orban's like, hey, I've got a new friend. And it's not just Putin. It's like, uh, oh gosh, I, I can never say the name of the Chinese um, democratically elected leader, but right. yeah. <laughs> Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping. Um, so, um, so I'm gonna contest that China was, that Trump was actually hard on China. Um, mm -hmm. He's he would say those words sometimes, um, but he then would also say things like, you know, she and I are great buddies and, you know, look at all the things that, you know, he's accomplished and this and that. Um, and, uh, and you now this supposed trade war that we got into with China um, was, um, it, did not, it was not very, we did not come out well in that. <laughs> so, so I, yeah. So I right, think it was it a was, lot of- But it was aggressive though. Uh, no, actually, his trade negotiations were not aggressive at all. I mean, he folded on a lot of things. Um, oh, sure. Oh, I see. Yeah. But but uh, so you're saying that that he didn't even try to have a war? Not really. It was I mean, if it were, I mean, well, maybe he did, but he failed pretty badly. Uh -huh. okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah, he, I mean, he he caved on a bunch of issues. Um, well, that's, and his, to, that's his style. Right. Yes. And, you know, to the detriment of, of American farmers and producers. So um, so I think we lost that war. Um, <laughs> and, um, and he, in reality, was not very hard on China at all. Um, so but yeah, that is the image. That is the reputation he gets, which is unfortunate because it, um, it, it doesn't it doesn't put the U.S. in a, it basically has put the U.S. in a worse position. Um, I think probably when in the end of the day, we'll see, I mean, it's too early to talk about the Biden administration, how they're gonna come out, but it's quite possible that in terms of actions, the Biden administration will be harder on China. That at least is very possible in the end. Um, but yeah, in terms of um, Trump providing top cover for dictators elsewhere and in how they feel about China, I mean, you know, they're, um, yeah. I mean, you know, geopolitics is driven primarily by interest and opportunism. And so I don't think these, you know, um, Orban, is he going to cozy up to China? Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I don't, and, you know. So, so uh, you don't think that people like Duterte and Bolsonaro, they, they saw Trump's or they heard Trump's rhetoric, but they looked at his actions and didn't and, and saw his actions and thought, oh, this is just rhetoric. Or do you think they're not the kind of guys to actually look at anything but rhetoric? I guess I'm, I'm going to say I'm not. I don't know what I don't know what they thought of Trump's rhetoric. What I, um, other than it, it gave them cover. It gave them top cover for what they were doing domestically, um, mm -hmm. certainly. Um, but that that would that matters much less than um, than the pursuit of their own interests geopolitically. And then mm -hmm. so, you know, say they want to cozy up to say they wanted to be on Trump's good side, and Trump said, you know, don't make a deal with China. You know, maybe they will, maybe they won't. It kind of depends on what's in it for them. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, so that's, so that's, so you're, I guess, I guess then, um, is this a good thing then in the long run that soft authoritarianism might not be that sustainable because although governmental officials, or I shouldn't say officials, even governmental leaders <clears throat> might find the Chinese model pretty attractive, a lot of populations would find the liberal democracy model more attractive. Or do you think the liberal democracy model has sort of like reached some hard limits on how attractive it is based on things like um, how we did around COVID or based on how fractious our domestic politics now seems or just based on um, people who like Western liberal democracies are 
broadly speaking, weird in the Joe Henrik sense of, you know, Western educated, I forgot what all the, all the letters stand for, but that they're just unusual populations and in most populations just don't find liberal democracy very attractive to them. I guess it depends on which way the soft authoritarianism goes, right? I mean, if it if it does have a tendency to move, to become, to harden, then I think that's a worse, then, then that's a bad thing, right? Then having, having a stable equilibrium of soft authoritarianism would be better than that. Um, yeah. yeah, and I think it's all, it's easier. And the, the, the problem is, and this is why I think the, 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 the challenge of liberal democracy, it's, it's always easier to get harder. <laughs> uh -huh. um, it's hard to loosen up. Um, it's hard to become more liberal. It's hard to become more democratic. And um, which I think that's why I think it's, I think soft authoritarian places are more likely to harden than anything else if they're going to go in one direction or another. Um, and it used to be that, I could be wrong, but my, my uh, cursory reading of world history was that the hard limits of hard authoritarianism in terms of securing materially satisfying existences for their people were mm -hmm. one of the big reasons that they many of those regimes didn't last very long because people just don't like being in poverty and being right. watched all the time whereas um there was liberal democracies clearly seemed quite attractive to mm -hmm. people but uh now that china has this alternative model maybe that's gonna no longer no longer be yeah. the case yeah, yeah, and I think that is a real danger, and that is actually that's the big appeal of the of the Beijing model, right? Is that now suddenly for these, um, you know, for these rulers, there is no trade off, right? They can be they can be in power, and their government, their population can be rich, and everybody can be happy, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, ostensibly. So, and is that because the Chinese um, government was just unusually adept at um, industrial policy? Or is there some new change that allows most hard authoritarian governments to become good at bringing about technological progress and that kind of thing? Because Russia has done you know, negative growth for the last few years, maybe just yeah. because they're a petro state, but I mean, you know, there aren't, there's only one China so far. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a tough one. I mean, yeah, I don't know. Cause there are a bunch of, there, you know, there's a bunch of literature on, you know, the resource curse, right. Um, if you're, you know, if you are, you know, dependent on a natural resource, you know, maybe think that's worse for you in the long run. So maybe being a petrol state is, you know, yeah, is, um, is bad in the long run. There's some pushback on that, um, on that thesis. I think China is, I wouldn't say they've been particularly adept at industrial policy. Um, I mean, cause you know, Greatly forward, so <laughs> right. Well, since since Mao, right? So yeah, I think what they have been good at, which and they learned the lesson. I think they learned this lesson from the Soviet Union was they did not. I mean, basically, the Soviet Union built the they created the own seeds of their own. The Soviet Communist Party um, mm -hmm. uh, created the own seeds of its illegitimacy because after every ruler died, what did they do? They then repudiated him. Um, and, you know, said, oh, everything he did was a mistake, and now we're going to do something different, it's going to be great now, and well, after enough times, you realize, wait a minute, maybe, maybe this, <laughs> maybe this ruler is, is also going to make mistakes, right, and there's something wrong with the party and the system, whatever, and China's never done that, they've never repudiated Mao, um, the worst that they've, it's, this is great, it's a very classic dystopia, um, there's been a decree on Mao's, um, accomplishments, and they've declared that he is 70% correct, <laughs> <laughs> Do they do they do they specify where he was and wasn't correct, or do they just leave that up to the reader? 
exactly. Yeah. So I, I, I think, yeah, I think they just leave it up to, um, mm -hmm. you know, to, yeah, that you know, would make more sense. So last question, um, mm -hmm. because this does relate to the, um, the approach that China will take to become more attractive. And it also is something I've just been curious about. To what extent are, is America, Western Europe, Japan penetrated by people who are on the payroll of the com Chinese Communist Party who are agitating in beha on behalf of China in say our newspapers or in our universities? Is that a real thing or is that heavy breathing from conservatives? I think so. I mean, they're always spies. Um, that is sure. that is a real thing. Um, there are always going to be some people on a payroll. I think it's less. So, that being said, that there are always going to be some people on a payroll. There are far fewer of them than I think the. Uh, you know, um, I think there are far fewer of them than conserve than the conservatives would like us to believe. I think the bigger danger is actually this kind of soft. <laughs> you know, influence, right? Where mm -hmm. people are taken by the model. Um, people are, they buy into the propaganda. They don't uh, see all of these other things that are going on behind the scenes in China and Hong Kong, wherever. And, and so, um, and so they they look at, they look at what's going on in China. They make their own assessment, um, but they, uh, but it's a very, but, but it's a wrong, it's an incorrect assessment. <laughs> Basically, I think that's much more dangerous and that's much more common. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so uh, I guess then that that makes me a little bit, a little bit uh, happier. I, I, I have this, uh, there's this philosopher named Philippe Lemoyne, Lemoyne, something like that, who wrote a very long piece for Quillette defending the Chinese government in the sense that basically saying, look, they really did control the coronavirus. The, the coronavirus almost certainly did not end up in a lab or did not come from a, a bio weapons lab or whatever. And he was just, he went through, it was a 40,000 word piece, right? So he went through this very scrupulously. <laughs> I didn't read it, but mm. you know, a lot of people instantly said paid mm -hmm. communist apparatchik, which is funny because he's, you know, pretty, pretty conservative politically. Um, and so, uh, but you think that that's, I got the sense from what you just said that that's not very common um, that, and that, I mean, I can imagine people genuinely liking the Chinese model and just arguing for it, just not, and they'd love to be paid for it, I'm sure, but they probably aren't. And they just happen to find it more appealing because there's less chaos they might think or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. So that's good. So I can be uh, less, what should I say, vigilant about that sort of danger. Right, but more vigilant about the other kind of danger. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'll have to, I, if I got that information, I could do a better job of being vigilant about what's going wrong in China, but I don't know. It's hard to see. Um, I mean, I'm, I, don't get me wrong. I've heard lots of criticisms of what's going on in China. There's lots of riots. There's lots of, um, you know, inequitable material prosperity. There's lots of corruption. There's lots of governments just taking people's resources and, you know, that kind of stuff. And as you said, silencing and the social media control, there's lots to criticize. I just imagine there's so much more we don't know about. So, yeah. all right. Thank you very much, Yvonne. Thanks for this lovely conversation. Thanks and for having me. My pleasure. And thanks everybody for watching and listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>